Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. When I was growing up in 1970s Britain, one of my favourite possessions was my two-part set of the Ladybird Kings and Queens of England, the narrative structure on which my entire knowledge of history was built. And that's true, isn't it, Tom, of lots of people. So Kings and Queens are the sort of, they're still the kind of idiom. Yeah, they're the scaffolding, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But uh, certainly you kind of work out English and then British history. Absolutely. The Elizabethan age, the Georgians, the Victorians, you know, the Plantagenets, they are the sort of foundational, they're the the foundation stones, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, Which is why I think that um, uh, this World Cup that we've been doing, so we should uh, explain to people who haven't caught up with all the fun and excitement. uh, We've been running a World Cup of uh, kings and queens of England. Uh, so from Athelstan all the way through to Elizabeth II, um, we uh, in the in uh, in our very first episode we looked at the the unexpected champion we who did. was actually Athelstan, the, the yes the first king who can probably I think be called the king of of England. So lots of people commented, Tom, that uh, were we basically saying that it had all been downhill uh, since then. I, think, I mean, I think that's a reasonable conclusion <laughs> to draw, isn't it? Yeah, you should uh, you should write that article for Unheard. They, they get a bit of extra yes. promotion. Yes. yes, I hope they give us a bonus for that. Yes, I, I should. Uh, well, I haven't been asked actually. Um, that's shocking. I can't yeah. believe that. Well, no, actually, we were, weren't we? They did ask us. They asked they us did. to write about Athelstan and Elizabeth the uh, Elizabeth the first, and we couldn't because uh, we were too. And busy. we were too too busy or too lazy, depending on. <laughs> I think too. But we were genuinely. I think too we busy. were genuinely too busy. Um, anyway, so so that was that was the first episode we did, and then we did um, the one that went out yesterday was on the uh, the the losing contestants in the Super Sixteens round. Yeah. Uh, so now we come to the quarterfinals and the semifinals, and the quarterfinals were Henry V against Elizabeth II, Henry VIII against William I, the Conqueror, Charles II against Elizabeth I, and Edward III against Athelstan. Some big games there. Some massive very games. Well, I mean, matches. you'd expect that, wouldn't you, in the quarterfinals of you a would. major global tournament? You would. Um, so the first match, um, Henry V against Elizabeth II. Henry V, a, a very proactive, dashing, charismatic king, yeah. smites the French against Elizabeth II, who's, who's basically in this contest because essentially she's done nothing. <laughs> that's very harsh she's done nothing but in a very politically savvy way I think, yes Tom. she's done nothing um, very well I, I mean we'll come on to elizabeth ii and the way that um 20th century 21st century monarchy uh, differs very radically obviously from say medieval exemplars um but dominic henry v is absolutely the model yeah he is of a warrior king Though the issue is how much he's been created by Shakespeare, isn't it? So most people's image of Henry V comes from, well, it comes from sort of children's book illustrations with his bowl haircut. His, yeah. his, his bowl haircut and he's waving a sword and he's got... Always, always. The, the leopards, the lions of England and the fleur-de-lis, the circoat. Yeah, he's, he's sort of scaling the walls at Harfleur. He's in the mud with all his men at Bowmen at, at uh, Agincourt. He's receiving a gift of tennis balls from the French. And does he throw them back or he says, because they say to him... Stay in England and play tennis, you wet weed. And he comes and he over says and, that I will serve such a game <laughs> yeah. as, the as has never been seen in as France. Has never been seen in France before. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and so he does, to be fair to him. Now, there are... Um, uh, one issue with Henry V is the trajectory of the story, which is irresistible, which is the sort of... In the popular imagination, he goes from this sort of laddish rogue hanging around with Falstaff, or mm -hmm. indeed Sir John Oldcastle, who's the character that mm -hmm. Falstaff is based on, to this sort of stern, rigorous, very pious, martial warlord. Yes. Um, and that's kind of an invention, isn't it? It's so he, apparently he, a complete invention. So he was never the sort of Royster Doyster who was no. you know, falling out of taverns and consorting uh, buffeting the ears of um, the Lord Chief Justice. Yeah, that, that didn't happen, no. did it? No, it didn't. And, it, and, and obviously Falstaff didn't... Exist. <laughs> so that whole, I know the not old man, banishing, yeah. you know, he's become a responsible leader, banishing the follies of his youth. Uh, all of this is a myth. And I think, as you said, I mean, it, it absolutely points to the way in which Shakespeare has shaped and... So you talked about um, the, the Ladybird books, and I agree that those kind of children's books that go through the kings and queens of England are massive, massive influences. But I think also that on the... Um, the 15th century in particular, Shakespeare is an absolutely outsized influence on the way that people yeah. understand the, the, the kings of that period. So Henry V and Richard III, they're the kind of polar opposites, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So, so Richard III is the villain. Henry V is the absolute hero. Uh, but, but having said that, I mean, Henry V was clearly a very, very, by, you know, if, if you're saying martial success and ability to defeat the French is the measure of, of effective kingship, he was a very, very effective king. Although you could argue he wastes a lot of resources in a war that ultimately England loses. Well, you know that I think that. So it avails us nothing in the long run. I mean, you he wasn't to know that, though, was he? I mean, he wasn't to know that in the 1410s because he dies young at the age of 35 in 1422 of a combination of dysentery and heat stroke, having apparently subdued the French and secured his own claim to the French throne. When the French king dies, Henry will succeed him and unite France and England. But then he dies and it's all for nothing. But I suppose he wasn't to know that. I mean, he could have lived to the age of 55 and maybe, who knows, you know, a Franco-Anglo-French um, union of crowns. Or do you think that's just utterly laughable and implausible? I don't think that would ever have happened. I mean, I yeah. just don't think the French would have accepted would have it. And I think yeah. that the, the resources of France were so vastly greater than those of England. Yeah. I mean, it was like those um, uh, those images you occasionally get from uh, Australia or something of a snake trying to swallow an improbable, you know, kangaroo or something. <laughs> and for a while it looks good, but then the kangaroo bursts It does out. happen, though. Some listeners will remember, our, for example, our Alexander the Great podcast in which a small group of adventurers... Yeah, but that didn't work, did it? The whole thing well, fell to pieces. Well, but it changed the course of history. I mean, who's to say that France would have emerged as it did in the well, I, sort of I, 16th I, and 17th centuries as such a superpower if it had been ruled by the English for longer? Well, there were two options. Either the French, uh, you know, in the reign of, of Henry VI, you know, if he succeeds when he's 40 or something, he'd still have been useless. <laughs> um, they, would have thrown, they would have thrown English rule off. Yeah. Or uh, you would have had a kind of Anglo-French uh, condominium but yeah. because France was so much richer, so much more sophisticated, so much classier, um, it, England would have ended up kind of supernumerary, I think. Oh, dear, Tom. Well, that's terrible. Um, so essentially, I, I think there was no way that it, that it would have been good. Um, and you're down on Henry V generally, I, aren't you? I do think he's, the most, I think he's the most overrated figure in English history. Why? Well, well because I think that he squandered money. Uh, yeah. I, I think it was a, a essentially vainglorious episode. 
uh, Shakespeare in his, you know, in his play, Henry the Fourth dying advice to Henry the Fifth, busy giddy minds with foreign troubles. That's Very basically nice. what he's doing because the the Lancastrian house, um, Henry the Fourth, Henry of Lancaster, has deposed his cousin Richard the Second, the son of the Black Prince, the grandson of Edward the Third, and that's a terrible thing to do. Uh, mm. You can't go around deposing kings because th- these are anointed, anointed of God. So yeah. Henry the Fourth labors under a kind of nagging anxiety that he has offended against God. Yeah. Uh, and I think Henry V is heir to that as well. So when Henry V become when Henry becomes king, he he brings Richard II's body to Westminster Abbey and buries it with with all due splendor. And again, Shakespeare on the eve of, of Agincourt has him kind of say, think not upon the fault my father made in compassing the ground. Yeah words to that effect so there's this this sense that even henry has that god is going to punish the house of lancaster at some point and basically the whole you know it's it's a squalid campaign that so goes vastly harsh, that very goes vastly harsh. better than than anyone could have anticipated i mean he's running enormous risk he very nearly gets captured that would then have bankrupted england because they would have had to pay his ransom yeah uh, he, I, I mean it was absolutely irresponsible risk but he won. The, but he won. He does win, but in the long run, England doesn't. And okay, the, 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 the blowback from their defeat in France is a crucial part. And, and of course, the, the blowback the of, of, the, of the, the, the original Lancastrian usurpation results in, in the Wars of the Roses. So I, I think that Henry V is essentially putting a, a rather flamboyant sticking plaster on some rather deep wounds there. Golly, that's harsh. However, however, having said that, having said that, I think he's, I mean, Let's play devil's advocate. He's very dashing. So, yes. So, Tom, just one quick question before we move on. Uh, I remember reading a book by the historian Ian Mortimer talking about Henry V and his road to Agincourt. And he painted Henry V as a ultra pious, almost a kind of a religious, you know, uh, sort of a, a very kind of ascetic figure, very almost a religious kind of fundamentalist or something kind of is monkish. that a bit is that a bit overdone do you think or is that the, is that true? no i think i think he was very i mean i think i think he was uh, absolutely and there's this awful story of him um that you know this is the age of the lollards yes um kind of so they're proto- sort of protestants, protestants yeah, yeah. Uh, and and one of them is is being burnt and he cries out to god and henry v hears him crying out to god so orders the fire the flames to be put out and asks if he's repented and the lollard says no so henry v orders the fires to be lit again wow re-burning so, yeah yes sort of, so, so robust attitude um however I, I mean to play devil's advocate uh clearly he is a, a magnificent warrior and yeah. one of the reasons why we know that he's not hanging out with Falstaff is that uh i, I mean basically he's he's been fighting since a very very young age um he fought the battle of shrewsbury didn't he well he's born in monmouth so he's on the anglo-welsh border um his uh yes he fights at the battle of shrewsbury against uh owen glendower who is a kind of i suppose kind of proto-welsh national leader uh yeah. and against the percys who are the overmighty subjects from the north um and then of course he does you know i mean there's no getting away from that he's very effective at fighting yeah. the french which is uh you've got to give him some credit for that i suppose um he's also the first he's the first king to use english in his private correspondence since oh, that's nice. um since 1066 that's so a nice that. um yeah. and he's he's been the hero of some fabulous films i mean i think the olivier film is is brilliant it still well, the, holds well, the, up the branner film is uh... yeah very good uh, i tell you the a terrible film uh is the <laughs> timothy chalamet one have you seen that no i haven't came that out got, a couple that of got quite laudatory reviews as i remember no it was awful uh so it got re it, they rewrote shakespeare 
Oh, and they kind of basically, back. and um, John Falstaff in that one doesn't die, and he accompanies oh. Henry V to France. And right. at, at some point, Henry tur- Timothy Chalamet turns to John Falstaff and says, "John." <laughs> John Falstaff says, "Yes," and Henry V says, "John, I just want to thank you for being you." Oh. <laughs> Oh, you're kidding. He's yeah. serious. Yeah, that's what they got rid of Shakespeare's <laughs> immortal verse. To... Oh, my word. That's I, mean, I don't want to sound old-fashioned, but no, that's not an advance, is it? That's definitely not an advance. All right, so uh, that's Henry V. Let us move on to another larger-than-life character, the, lar- the, the larger-than-life character in all English history. Probably the monarch. I mean, I think we said this the other day on the um, – uh, yesterday's podcast that this is the monarch who is best known around the world and that is of course henry the eighth six wives gargantuan appetite break with rome you know capricious um charismatic um, magnetic personality a great lover of tennis of of music um of of, of dressing up in hoods um yes. uh, a great bullingdon man <laughs> so hopefully you'll be doing your impersonation <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, a tremendous, a tremendous and, and the hero, the hero of a, a, a top book, a top children's book, a top, a top children's, children's book. book. Well, you so, say the hero. Well, no, you see Henry really, VIII. I think in a funny way, I think he's a little bit underestimated, um, because I think the one thing people never appreciate with Henry VIII, who is of course the king at the beginning of the the first part of the 16th century, the Great Reformation king, is how insecure his position is when he takes over, because you're talking about being the you know the son of a usurper. I mean, he basically, he too is the son of a usurper in Henry VII, who's won the crown on the battlefield. And Henry VIII and his stuff with his six wives and all the sort of beheadings and whatnot. That only makes sense if you understand it against the background of the Wars of the Roses and the insecurity of his position. Family tree shenanigans, as I think the phrase he used <laughs> yesterday. Tree shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. Well, Which... So so I think Henry VIII, Henry VIII is, I think he gets a bit of a bad press. I mean, right. obviously, he was terribly fat. He was capricious. All these things, but well, he becomes con- fat, doesn't he? But it, yeah, but all king. I mean, I was only reading that we, we will be discussing Edward the Third later on. He becomes very fat and old and capricious. So, with Henry the Eighth, I think what people underestimate is the extent to which people at the time thought he was the model of a king. Don't you? Or am I being too kind? I th- I mean, I think that uh, what Henry the the reason for Henry the Eighth's celebrity. It's clearly partly his wives, and we've done a we've done a whole episode on them, and it's this kind of idea of him as a a, a blue beard, a, a wife murderer, um, and that gives him the quality of an ogre. I mean, literally yeah. an ogre. Um, and we don't actually have many ogreish kings. I mean, we have we've had frightening kings. So Edward the First is clearly a frightening king. Mm. Richard the First is a frightening king. Cromwell, in his his own way, is a kind of a, a frightening, intimidating figure. But Henry VIII is, I mean, he's a proper tyrant, but he's hes a glamorous tyrant. And I think it's that blend of, of glamour and tyranny. I mean, he's the one that's closest to a, a Nero or a, yeah. a kind of, a, you know, that model of a Roman emperor. Um, well, it's the charisma, think, isn't it? It's the it, it, charm and the it, charisma. It, it, and... It's the charisma and the bloodiness that combines. Uh, and I think that that, so Froissart, who, who we'll probably come on to when we talk about Edward III, great French historian of the 14th century, says of the English that um, basically they're very, very disrespectful towards their kings and they expect their kings to do what they want them to do. And that, that kings exist on sufferance in England, you know, which is a striking thing for him to say, yeah. you know, three years, 
three centuries before um, execution of Charles I. Henry VIII, you know, you've said how precarious his position is when he begins, but he really rests it round. And what he does to, you know, to, to, to the Roman church, what he does to the aristocracy, what he does to, to anybody who dares to stand up to him. I mean, he is a tyrannical figure. But the contrast to that is obviously the previous century. So the Wars of the Roses and, and Henry VI. So yeah, for absolutely. a 16th century monarch, you look back at the recent past and you say, well, we had this dreadful drip in Henry VI. He was very kind, um, who, who thought about God, who was very nice to small children and animals. And he was an absolute dead loss. The barons were completely out of control. There was anarchy and civil war and all this sort of stuff. And you have to be formidable. And also Henry's living in an age, Henry VIII is living in an age of, as we talked about before, of incredibly formidable kings. So Francis of um, France, King Francois, or Charles V, the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of Spain. I mean, they are titanic figures. But it's a tribute to Henry, of- isn't it, that he can even be measured in the same, mentioned in the same breath. I mean, England is, is such a kind of second division power yeah. compared to France or the empire. The, the, yes, the very idea of right. comparing them is... Is kind of comical. So it's and, that also is a tribute to his charisma, I think. And he's also consequential in a way that is not true of all the monarchs on this list. I mean, you mentioned Elizabeth. We'll come to Elizabeth II. Let's be frank. Even the greatest admirer of the Queen could not possibly claim that she is a really consequential monarch. You know, she's not. She's not even. She's a. She's a uniting figure, and she's consensual and all that stuff. But she hasn't changed anything. Henry VIII changes the entire destiny of the country because of course it's not in given that france had been a hotbed of protestantism but ends up as a catholic country ends up as the exemplar of sort of catholic absolutism it's it's not inevitable that england will be protestant i mean it could easily have remained loyal to the to the Roman no church. no I, I, and england was famously devoted to the church of rome to the virgin um always had been uh and and actually of course one of one of the um one of the, the key symbolic moments in Henry's reign is when he orders the desecration of the shrine of Thomas Beckett, who we talked about in reference to Henry II. And, and, and in played, that, by some, played by some absolutely top-class yes, actors. some top actors who, who you know, who, who miss their vocation. Um, I mean, Beckett posthumously is the victor over Henry II. But Henry VIII, yeah. you know, he, he smashes up Thomas Beckett's tomb, has his relics, you know, burnt and chucked into the river. Uh, I mean, Henry triumphs over Beckett. Yeah. I remember I, I met um, an American Jesuit who was over in England, I think for a year or something. And he was telling me that he'd been to Windsor and he'd been to the chapel where Henry VIII is buried. Um, and there was obviously kind of ropes around the, the tomb. And he said that when no one was looking, he jumped over the ropes and danced on Henry VIII's oh my God. tomb. <laughs> That's a bit much. So, so um, there are still deeply felt wounds. Yeah. Um, yeah. But of course, another paradox of, of Henry's role is that uh, in the long run, his reign proves to be a turning point in the relationship of the monarchy to, to Parliament. Yeah. Well, because fashioned view. I think, well, that's controversial among his I know it's controversial, so. but um, I mean, I think it's indisputable that Henry's reign does not damage the, the, the reputation and the potency of Parliament. Yeah. That's true. I mean, let's phrase it like that. And also, Henry, he's he's an ambiguous figure because he is himself deep down theologically still quite Catholic, isn't he? So I had a when we were t- doing the World Cup on on uh, Twitter, I posted a facetious tweet that Henry had invented tennis, music, and Protestantism, and lots of people replied saying he wasn't even a real Protestant. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, he didn't actually invent music either. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, Luther, Luther thought he was, uh, I mean, obviously he had a bust up with Luther because um, he'd written a defense of, That's of, right. of, the, of the papacy, of the Church of Rome, which is why uh, Defender of the Faith remains the title of, of, of the British monarch to this day. But even once he'd broken with Rome, I mean, Luther thought that he was, you know, he was mad he'd, he'd, that, that Henry had basically proclaimed himself God. Yeah. Which he effectively, um, well, he proclaims himself God's you know, vicegerent in his own kingdom, doesn't he? And then gets Cromwell and to smash up the monasteries for him because he wants the money. So the fascination of Henry's reign is, is that to me, the fascination is that, that, that perfect combination of kind of opportunism, of avarice, of political calculation in a context of genuine, you know, evangelical fervor. And it's the interaction of those things that makes it such a, a fascinating story. And then you put the wives on top of that and the court machinations and stuff. And it becomes this, you can understand why Hilary Mantel, why Shakespeare, why legions of kind of novelists have found all this so, so fascinating because I think more than any other monarchical story in our history, it has a cocktail of every possible ingredient. It's interesting that some of our greatest writers have detested him. So yeah. Charles Dickens in his children's history, uh, the plain truth is that he was a most intolerable ruffian, a disgrace <laughs> to human nature and a blot of blood and grease upon the history of England. Um, and, and Jane Austen and Jane Austen, yeah. Henry VIII, his only merit was his not being quite so bad as his daughter, Elizabeth. Oh, golly, that's harsh. Tracy Borman wouldn't like that. Would Tracy Borman would be absolutely outraged. But you see, Hilary Mantel, one of the things I think that was um, really good about Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall sort of trilogy um, which I do think actually, like a lot of people, went on a bit too long, uh, is that it, 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 it captures the magnetism of Henry. He is an, an attractive person to be around, particularly at first. He is an exciting person. And I think that's absolutely how he must have seemed. He was a giant, wasn't he? And he's, he is brilliant at all these things. He is, br he is brilliant at sport. He is, he speaks five languages. He's fascinated by he's scientific green instruments. Sleeves. Yes. Yeah, he, but All I mean, he, that, that, yeah. obviously, he's a Renaissance too. prince. Yeah, he's an absolute Renaissance prince. But, um, but isn't it a bit like Victoria that we were talking yesterday about how she goes from Gemma Coleman to, <laughs> yes, this kind of Judy Dench, <laughs> Judy Dench, with no intervening yes. period. Yes. And it's the Judy Dench period that dominates. Yeah. And with Henry, uh, I suppose because of Holbein. So again, it's Dickens is brilliant on this. And he says that, um, he's talking about when he was 18. Uh, he says, people said he was handsome then, but I don't believe it. He was a big, burly, noisy, small-eyed, large-faced, double-chinned, swinish-looking fellow in later life. <laughs> As we know from the likenesses of him painted by the famous Hans Holbein, and it is not easy to believe that so bad a character can ever have been veiled under a prepossessing appearance. Brilliant. So he so went Dickens from, really yeah, maybe the way to think of him is having gone from kind of Jude Law to Jude Law to Johnny Vegas. Um, yes. <laughs> with no <laughs> but, intervening but, period. But, it, but it's Johnny Vegas. It's that incarnation that, that we imagine, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's, it's the it, kind of fat. And, and Dominic, did. Yeah. <laughs> was there perhaps um, a treatment that his physicians gave him that they, has they been did, mentioned in a top children's book? And um, top podcast, and, and, I think we talked about it. Did we talk about it in the podcast? Yeah, we did. But I wondered they, whether perhaps you'd like to. Well, listeners, may, some listeners may remember that uh, Henry's doctors had to insert a silver tube <laughs> into his bottom and squirt him with uh, a mixture of herbs and milk and honey from a pig's bladder. 
Yes. A treatment that I've never tried, <laughs> but some, some we listeners. We could do it live on the podcast. <laughs> we could. When we do our top 10 enemas, um, <laughs> then we can culminate with a, with a live. A live <laughs> squirting from a pink Maybe we'll invite, we'll invite the worst guest we've had. We'll choose our worst guest and subject them to this treatment. That's a lovely image. Right. Let's move on. Tom is laughing too much to talk. So I, I will take command of the podcast. We should take a break and we'll come back with, uh, Charles II after but, the break. But you know, we're, in a, we're again, we're in a, a Rachel Morley situation because we've only done two and we've got to do four more. That's because we got sidelined by, um, ludicrous. Top 10 enemas and things. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, we won't do that in the second half. We'll be much more responsible. Bye bye. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, while you were listening to the ads, Tom was actually trying out that enema treatment, and he's <laughs> back now. He looks refreshed, cleansed. Yes. Purged, he's a new man. I think is the word. <laughs> Purged, exactly. So, Tom, a great character. The third quarterfinal, Charles II against Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I absolutely murdered Charles II. Elizabeth, did. Elizabeth I did to Charles II what Cromwell would have liked to do. Yeah. Dispatched him. Um so Charles II was a seed, mainly yeah. mainly thanks to to your advocacy and Tracy Borman. I, I yeah. would not have had him as a seed. I would have had Cromwell as a seed, I think. Um, but he's a he's a kind of an attractive figure. He's a great character. He's a character, isn't he? Isn't he? So he's, a- um, he's the son of Charles I. Yeah. Um, Civil War. He uh, at the end of the Civil War, he goes into exile. He comes back, tries to um, launch an invasion of England from Scotland. Uh, gets defeated at the Battle of Worcester by Cromwell, has to rush around hiding in oak trees and things, Um, sails away from Shoreham, uh, spends the rest of of, uh, Cromwell's protectorate in uh, in the Netherlands, and then in 1660 is restored. Yeah, and issues the Declaration of Breeder, so he comes back promising kind of... Limited, tender consciences. Yeah, relative tolerance and sort of... Although it is relative, isn't it? Because 1662, the Act of Uniformity, is a kind of... uh, yeah, exactly. Which, there is the Clarendon Code, which is seen as a sort of an attempt to institute Anglicanism um, and to be a bit more intolerant to people who are outside to, the dissenters. Yeah, to dissenters, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then he's involved in a series of, I mean, a series of very high-profile events. So obviously, there's the Great Fire of London. There's a plague. There is what some historians traditionally have seen as the birth of politics with the exclusion crisis when uh, Parliament tries to get rid of his, to exclude his brother James, Duke of York, from the succession because he's a Catholic and you get the first sort of, the first vestiges of kind of, of, of factional, of, of factions coalescing into Whigs and Tories. Um, but it's also, Charles is... And also, also um, I, I should mention, because our Dutch followers are always going on about this, yeah. but apparently there was some war between England and the Dutch Republic to... that the Dutch won, but I, that sounds very improbable. We need to me. To I, think we no, should... I think we should give that no thoughts at all. Um, anyway, <laughs> we'll just draw a veil over that and not even mention. Uh, but he, but you've, you've been to the Rijksmuseum. I have, yeah, I've seen Did all those go... paintings of, of naval victories that absolutely I've never astonishing. Heard of. I know yeah. you go in; it's just full of paintings of of the Dutch beating the English, and I, yeah, it's absolutely shocking. It should be allowed, isn't it? They're just minor skirmishes, aren't they, in yes. English waters? I think ludicrously overinflated. Yeah. So um, we don't know what the Dutch are going on about. Anyway, so so let's focus on more important things because, of course, the most famous thing about Charles II is that he had lots of mistresses. He did. Nell Gwyn. Um, he had who was, as I recall, from 1066 and all that. Was she selling oranges? 
Um, she was, and claim? she was one of the top ten mistresses. Was she? That you missed because you were malingering. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's Barbara Villiers, Lady Castlemaine. Yeah, there's, she's great. Uh, and Peep sees her underwear. He does. He's very excited he, by it, isn't he? Yes, he is. Uh, uh, there's Louise de Kerouai. Yeah. yeah. The Duchess um, of Portsmouth. And there's Francis, Francis Stewart, who resists his um, importunities, and she then becomes the model for Britannia on the coinage. That I didn't know. That's a good fact. Um, he's also a great scientist. So he's very interested in science. He's instrumental, obviously, in the Royal Society and in the Royal Observatory. In sixteen sixteen, in January 16th, there's a great entry in Pepys's diary, Tom. Uh, Pepys meets uh, Charles II in the park on going for a walk with his brother James. And they go afterwards to the King's little elaboratory. So a place where you elaborate. Yes. So that's where so that's laboratory where the comes, comes from. from, which I didn't know. So you I go and elaborate that. there. Did you know that? No, that's the great thing about this podcast. I'm learning new things. We're all learning the time. all the time. So Peep said it was a pretty place and he there saw a great, I saw a great many chemical glasses and things, but understood none of them, which is exactly how I felt as <laughs> yes, a teenager. Science lessons, Doing science. Lessons. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and Prince Rupert was, Prince Rupert was a, very, a keen chemist very as well. well. Absolutely. Um, so, so the Stuarts, they're great scientists, great scientists, but also uh, we, and we should mention this also a uh, great enthusiast for the slave trade. Yes, as well. So yes, Rupert, Rupert so. was definitely involved in it, and that, so Charles that was, II involved in the slave trade. I think he was. I think he was an investor in an investor. But let's face it: if you're in the Stuart Court in the mid 17th century, everyone's an investor, right? Okay, mm-hmm. but I think I think just mention that because that was something that that I saw kind of bubbling up. Did you? I didn't see that. Second. I yeah. don't follow that I, that part of Twitter. It may amaze you to. to well, I just know. I was just scanning through, seeing what people were saying about all the various kings, and that was so looking at the negatives as well as positives, and and that's. I mean, I guess it's kind of up there with um, wiping out Irish towns, expelling the Jews, and investment in the slave trade are are still you seen know, as no black, They're black marks. The other big thing at the time, of course, so he signs a secret treaty with um, uh, Louis the Fourteenth, in which Louis the Fourteenth basically says he will pay him two hundred and thirty thousand uh, pounds if Charles A joins that war with the Dutch, which is a shambles, which you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Which but we're B, casting a veil over secretly. Uh, if he converts to Catholicism and will come out as a Catholic and lead England towards Catholicism, something that Charles actually has no intention of doing. But he does on his, his deathbed, doesn't he? He converts. Him. Supposedly he does Supposedly. on his deathbed, exactly. So clearly Charles had, shall we say, pap- papist, papal sympathies. Um, and he takes this money from the French. Uh, and he's, th- this has sometimes been held against him by kind of Protestant Whiggish historians, but who also see him as conniving and weasel-like and not setting a clear direction and stuff. I mean, I would say he's a brilliant politician who in very troubled times is actually a very popular king and manages to hold onto his position. And yeah, I think he I mean, actually- he, Well, he faces the same problem that his father had, which is that he doesn't have the money. Yeah, exactly. Which is why he takes the money from the French. Yes. Uh, and so rather than kind of, you know, fight a civil war over it, because he's learned from his dad that that's yeah. <laughs> possibly not the best policy. Yes. And, and, that, and that's the thing that um, that Rochester, the Earl of Rochester, uh, who's a, a fabulously scabrous poet. Have, I mean, have you got a quotation well, I've, fa- I've, fa- I've got the famous one. Um, I mean, this is a poem about Charles II that, he, that Rochester wrote, which is so rude that I, I can't read it because we'll lose all our sponsors. Yeah. But the but the concluding line is is the it has the famous phrase restless he rolls about from whore to whore a merry monarch scandalous and poor and people always remember the, the the merry monarch and the whores and the scandal and things but it's the poverty isn't it really that that underpins a lot of that these decisions yeah, but Tom on. he he is a merry monarch he I mean we haven't talked massively about what it is 
to be a king. And, and so much of it is about presentation, spectacle, performance, iconography. Charles II ticks all of those boxes. He's, he's a very, like Henry VIII, I suppose, he's, or Henry V, you immediately know who he is when you see him. Absolutely. He looks like a Spaniel, wig. basically. Spaniel, yes. Yeah. And Well, like a King Charles II <laughs> Spaniel. Yeah. Indeed. But he plays the part brilliantly. He's a very canny politician. He doesn't allow his opponents to outsmart him. Um, there's a brilliant book by Jenny Uglo called A Gambling Man, uh, where the motif is about cards and playing cards. And Charles II is a brilliant card player. He knows what card to play at the right time. He always stays in the game, unlike his brother James, who was kicked out after only three years, and unlike his father. So of all the Stuarts, to me, he's... I mean, I know we're fans of James I on this podcast, but he is the most magnetic and the, and in many ways the most impressive did he not say about about james the second about james that no one would would murder him charles to make him king i mean that's quite yeah quite waggish. yeah yeah would you would you say that uh, of all the uh, the monarchs we've talked about he's the one who's most like boris <laughs> that's very good uh yes i hadn't thought of that but he is very boris like but i was i was just about to say he's probably of all the monarchs on this podcast who would you go for a drink with um charles the uh, second's got to be up there yeah, you'd be frightened to have a drink with Edward the First, wouldn't you? I wouldn't have his, a drink with spill his pint. I wouldn't go for a drink with Richard the Lionheart or something. I mean, he wouldn't even tell. Oh, me. <laughs> smacking on the back, oh, be terrifying. Yeah, or Knut. I mean, <laughs> well, I don't know. And a beachside, right. a, be- a beachside, beachside cocktail, barbecue. No yeah. Yes. <laughs> anyway, we're 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 waffling. Let's um, that Charles the Second. I think quarterfinals is about right. I actually expected him to reach the semis because of the sheer magnetism of the Mary Monarch, but he didn't. Uh, crashed out to Elizabeth I. Maybe with a different draw, he could have gone further. However, he didn't get a different draw. So the next monarch to crash out was Edward III. Against Athelstan. By Athelstan. So Edward III, he was king for 50 years. I mean, by medieval standards, a colossal, absolutely well, he was colossal He was 14 ring. when he became king. He was, wasn't he? So and his, his, his mum and yeah. her, her partner, her lover. <laughs> uh, had, Do that again? Uh, that was very good. <laughs> lover. <laughs> Had uh, had disposed of uh, Dad Edward II. Yes, horrifically, unpleasantly. Um, Everyone red... knew, so we won't go on about it. Yeah. Oh, you were just about to. Yeah, I was. I was about to say. <laughs> well, it's a poker, isn't it? It's the insertion Supposedly, of a poker. Yes. That's Supposedly. the claim, but I think that a lot of more serious, scrupulous historians say that probably is just a total invention. So we'll say um, it happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there, Roger Mortimer and Isabella, and Edward basically turns against them when he grows up a little bit more, doesn't he? And gets rid of them, and Roger Mortimer is hanged. I think. So I always loved Edward the uh, Third. I think we talked about this before. The um, Conan Doyle's novels about the chivalry co- and is it the White and Company, White Company, Sir, yeah. Sir Nigel, <laughs> which at the time didn't seem funny to me at all. Um, I absolutely loved them, and Edward the Third is such a kind of dashing figure in them. He's a model of a yeah. But he's slightly, do you not think he's slightly, to people who are not experts on the 14th century, Edward III just seems like a slightly generic, bearded English king. He fights the French. He's very chivalrous. Yes. But what's I wrong mean, with that? No, you, nothing, you, nothing is wrong with that. But I find you're not him, complaining about that. I'm not complaining, but I find him quite hard to pin down what's distinctive about him. Well, he's, so he goes, so he, he lays claim to the French throne. Yeah. Um, again, Absolutely unjustifiably, but what the hell? Uh, they've, and- they've confiscated Aquitaine, haven't they? The French. That's what he. That's what he. That's the pretext for all this, or that's the trick. Well, no, he's he's he's, he's claiming it, it's it's all to do with the Salic law. Well, there's um, a bit of that. Where, where well, he's, yeah. It's sent through the female line, which according to French law doesn't count, and he says it does. Anyway, it's all just an excuse to have a, a massive romp 
Uh, and so they, so they, the English defeat the French at, at the naval battle of Sluice, and then they have the battle of Cressy, yeah. where they unleash the longbow. Great moment. So, and it's it's kind of heartwarming. It's the it's the it's the union between stirring chivalrous knights and kind of horny-handed Sandbrook figures, yeomen with their yeoman, yeoman, I think is the with, word. with their with their longbows, um, and it's all utterly chivalrous. And uh, the the Black Prince, his son, is is um, he's he's it's his first big battle. He's coming under pressure. People come and ask Edward III, should we go to his rescue? And he says, no, let the boy win his spurs. And he yeah. does win his spurs. Great moment. And, and um, he, he, he kills the blind king of Bohemia uh, and takes his, um, his uh, Ich dien, I serve, his motto, which yeah. is still the Prince of Wales motto to this day. And it's all utterly chivalrous. And then, yeah. and then in due course, the Black Prince wins the Battle of Poitiers as well in exactly the same way. And he actually captures the French king. Yeah. Uh, Edward III has captured both the Scottish and the French king. You know, it's all... You know what's not to like? It's all utterly chivalrous and heroic. However, there are th- there are two massive downsides. One is the Black Death, which okay, obviously Black is not Death. good news. That's not really his fault, though. I mean, he can't. No, claim, it's not. You know, it's he not. should have locked down earlier. Well, but, but I mean, it's like COVID kind of interrupting the sports fixtures. That yeah. it, it interrupts the Hundred Years' War, so they have to kind of stop the Hundred Years' War. Um, you know, we'll play it in kind of empty stadiums. Behind closed doors. <laughs> yes, behind closed doors. So the Battle of Cressy is before the Black Death and Battle of Poitiers comes, you know, they're come emerging out of lockdown. Um, but the other thing that uh, stands against Edward III is that um, he ends up uh, very kind of senile and under the thumb of a sinister mistress called Alice Perez. Alice Perez. Is she sinister or is that just put about uh, by it's her? All, yeah, it's all put about. I don't know. I mean, but um, there's the definite sense that actually... A, a bit like with Henry V, the whole idea of invading France is basically a disastrous idea and that no matter how successful some of the battles might be, the whole thing in the long run will lead to a kind of meltdown, which is what happens in England yeah. because peasants revolt, misery. Um, but Tom, it's a very important reign, isn't it? Because it sees uh, the triumph of chivalry. It sees English being used in law courts and in parliament. Chaucer, Chaucer of course. Yeah. So it feels like, is it wrong to see it as a... As a well, how can it be a golden age when the third of the population has been killed by the Black Death? But people do see it as... I mean, obviously, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle saw it as a bit of a golden age, didn't he? Uh, I mean, I think I think it, it, it kind of merges with a, a vague, hazy idea of King Arthur. Um, yes. So Prassar that, uh, said, didn't he, that uh, Edward III was such a king as had not been seen since the days of King Arthur. Yes, and, and there's the whole... He establishes the Order of the Garter. Um, yeah. Oni Swaki Mali Ponce. Evil be to he who... Evil yeah, thinks, evil uh, honey, you've lost your garter as 1066 transcribes it. So I think there's a kind of um, a, a general, a bit like Henry V, there's a, a, a kind of aureate glow around it. Um, mm. But also when I think of it, I, th- I think of it as, um, so if I'm kind of imagining Edward III's reign, I'm thinking a bright sunny morning, glorious midday, and then the clouds start to, to roll in. And plague. And yeah. plague, and it all goes wrong. So the historian Norman Cantor said of uh, Edward III, he was an avaricious and sadistic thug. Uh, I'm sure he was. But that's what people wanted, isn't it? And that's that's the yeah. mark of great great kingship in the medieval period: to booty for your mates and and you know bashing the French. Which which again, uh, I think, kind of highlights the way that uh, in this World Cup, um, we are every monarch has to be judged by the standards of the age in which they rule. And I suppose ultimately what, what's being judged is whether they're iconic. Yeah, I think that's probably true. So uh, talking of avaricious and sadistic thugs, we're now onto the semifinals. 
and uh, the f- the first semi final saw Athelstan. It was it was a sort of you know it was a, an Anglo Saxon Norman rematch, wasn't it? It was Athelstan against William the Conqueror. At that point, when I saw Jonathan Wilson make the draw, it was blindingly obvious to me that Athelstan would make the final because William the Conqueror is a man who is respected, but I think fair to say not loved. No, and I'm amazed actually that he got this far, and I think it's really interesting uh, the fact he did get this far. What it says about um, well, about how Hastings is viewed, actually. But he's re- but he's he's been rewarded here. Nobody, I mean, if you asked English people in the streets, do you wish the Anglo Saxons had won the Battle of Hastings? They would probably say yes, wouldn't they? The Anglo Saxons are romantic. They are the underdogs in the Battle of Hastings. But he is being he's a, he's the sort of Margaret Thatcher of this competition. Yeah, but if you said but if but if you but, but if you said um, we lost the Battle of Hastings, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't think people would say that. Um, I mean, you might say, you know, an English person might say, we won the Battle of Waterloo or we won the Battle of Britain. But yeah. would would we say we lost the Battle of Hastings? I don't think we would because I think no, we recognise right. that actually what William brought was so formative for England that it's become a part of, of, of what it is to be English. And yeah. obviously that's the case with the monarchy. Uh, the, the monarchy is more Norman perhaps than it is Anglo-Saxon. You mean because it's... The Anglo-Saxon monarchy was more what was more elective, more consensual, more no, more low-key, no, or no, what? no. I, I, the antiquity and the dignity of the Anglo-Saxon monarchy is very, very important to William. It's it's part of the loot of England. It's part of what he wants. The yeah. fact that it is um, dare I say sacral. You, know, <laughs> you become an as Duke of Normandy. He's not an anointed ruler as King of England. He is so that's very important. But. The fact that basically we date kings from 1066. Yeah. So we've said that, you know, there are three King Edwards before Edward I, but he is the first Edward. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think it reflects the fact that essentially we see William as the founder of the English monarchy in a way that yeah. obviously is ahistorical, but reflects a, a kind of deep truth of, of just how significant William's reign is. Um, and that therefore, in a sense, he is seen as not just a kind of alien invader, perhaps in the way that Knut is. But as as a, a legitimate king of England, as a as yeah, a, I think that's true. Of... It's partly because of the Doomsday Book, isn't it? Because the Doomsday Book is seen as one of the foundational texts of English yeah. government and of English identity. Actually, also, I think, I, I mean, he he, yeah, he he, um, the the kind of the castles that his uh, that he and his followers planned across England, they've kind of also become representative of of the Middle Ages for people. Yeah. So if you have a castle and the great uh, cathedrals of which Durham would be the the kind of the first that these for people these for most of us i think are kind of visual symbols of what england is and because we don't have anglo-saxon equivalents that's another reason i think why the anglo-saxon period is so much more shadowy yeah i'm sure i think that's a that, that's very true i think there's also with william though there's the issue of his should we say his bastardy so he was called william the bastard because he was illegitimate and he's seen to have behaved like a bastard as was in, a bastard, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Harrying northerners, um, smiting people. Well, again, so 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 um, a definite sense from from Twitter engagements that people in the north have not forgotten. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was a kind of near genocidal repression of rebellion in the north. I mean, can you make a case for him and say he's ruthless and that's what he has to be? I mean, he lives in a ruthless age where you you win by the sword, and if you don't. You die. I mean, that's the, surely the case you'd make that he's a strong leader, and any successful regime in those these, you know, in the eleventh century, you have to be really stern. Uh, 
yes, I think so. Um, but but even his own followers, so Audric Vitalis, mm-hmm. who's uh, very admiring of him, generally says of the Harrowing of the North that, that with this, I, I cannot, you know, I can't, I can't justify this. This was a, a terrible thing. So even by the standards of his own time, he's seen as yeah. repressive, autocratic. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the um, the great abbey he builds on the site of um, uh, Hastings, the Battle of Hastings, is also a monument to that because that's built as a way to try and expiate yeah. the crime that he committed in killing so many people. So I think that that kind of strange, which you also have in Henry V, the strange combination of, of um, kind of martial brutality and piety you absolutely get in William. Yeah. And neither of those are very popular qualities. But that's why the story that everybody enjoys about William is his funeral. So he's died in Normandy and his his body is sort of expanded with gas, hasn't it? Isn't that right? That he's sort of swollen. They're trying to shove his body into the coffin. It's basically too small for it. He's become an enormous fellow. They shove him in and he bursts and his entrails fall out with a terrible stench. That's right. And everybody doesn't, doesn't everybody run out of the church in horror or something. So it's a very undignified end. Harold yeah. Godwinson's revenge, I think we yes. could call it. And he's buried next to his wife, Matilda, who everyone says is very small, but actually wasn't. Wasn't she? No, she wasn't, apparently. Why do people say it then? Um, because their graves got rifled in the French Revolution and I think bits have got kind of lost. <laughs> Right. So, so people thought she was basically four foot. She was absolute midget. <laughs> well, but they just they just mis- they don't realise that the rest of her is well, missing. They, they, well, they've they've kind of gone back and 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 worked out that actually she was of absolutely average height. Okay. So, well, this is fascinating stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so an average heighted woman, yes. um, not a small one. Yeah. Uh, right. So we have one other semi final loser, don't we? So we had the Elizabeth Derby, Elizabeth I against Elizabeth II. Uh, yet again, Elizabeth I won an absolutely crushing victory. And Elizabeth II, now you said, you know, you said that she'd done nothing. I mean, she hasn't done nothing, but she's done little by comparison with her previous. She's, she's, she's had done to make nothing in a choices, positive way, hasn't she? Yeah. She's been positively boring. Yes. She's been very canny in her boringness, I think. And she has, you know, God, I, I mean, I do so many kind of channel five talking head things about the 20th century monarchy my heart really isn't in saying yet again you know she's managed the <laughs> she's navigated the shoals <laughs> oh yeah great friends with harold wilson you know silver jubilee i could do it in my, to be honest i just hear my own voice droning in my sleep when i'm doing all this doing all this stuff my agent will be absolutely livid with me for saying this uh doing myself out of you know 101 top elizabeth the second moments on channel four and 2027 or whatever anyway uh do you want to talk about the queen tom <laughs> well i i think um so if we say we have to judge monarchs by um you know if we're judging the, their success by the standards of the age in which they live i would say that yeah. there's a case for saying elizabeth ii is the most successful monarch britain's ever had well if you're judging but but you're judging by such different standards aren't you i mean yeah yeah of course uh so she hasn't um changed the course of english history she hasn't won you know hasn't defeated the french um hasn't uh changed um the religion or anything like that um but her role as constitutional monarch has been to serve as a figurehead for the nation you should do, do these documentaries instead of me. You're I know I should, but I, because but for me, I haven't actually really thought about this before. So for me, it's all fresh. So <laughs> okay. um, you can just kind of barrack me on the side. <laughs> yeah. But but 
what what you'd say about the decades of her reign is that they have been remarkably convulsive that they it's hard to think of a time where people's understanding of of say morals or ethics have changed so radically no oh, this and we've century. discussed that before i mean that's, I think, I mean, that's I think, culturally convulsive. Come on, I, I mean I the think, Reformation I think att- attitudes to sex, to gender, yeah, to race have have changed so profoundly. And, and I think also what's interesting is that they have changed in ways that objectively should be very destabilizing to the idea of a hereditary monarchy, because um, the the idea of a kind of uh, authority and privilege. Um, oppressing those who historically have been underprivileged has become an absolute no-no. I mean, that's yeah. what kind of has driven the feminist revolution, the um, uh, the giving to to uh, gay people of you know basically rights equivalent to heterosexual people, the um, anxieties about racism. Um, that all of these you would have thought would be threatening to the idea of. Uh, the fact that our head of state rules by virtue of her descent from a long line of monarchs who ultimately yeah. go back to Woden. Uh, you think, <laughs> you know, this is, this is, this is, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing obvious about the fact that people would continue to accept this. And, you know, I think by and large people do. And so by that standard, I would say that, that Elizabeth's achievement has been astonishing. And I think the reason why she's been successful isn't just because she's, you know, she's accepted that being boring is basically what her job has been. But also that she really believes it. She takes it very, very seriously. Mm. And I think that, that it's absolutely essential for the success of monarchy that monarchs themselves take what they're doing very, very seriously. Yeah, you couldn't be a flippant and monarch, you could, could you? you? There's no, you couldn't be a kind of Charles II type monarch now. You have to take it seriously. You have to be earnest about it. And Elizabeth II really does. She really does think that she's been appointed by God, yeah. I think. And, uh, that's what makes me wonder whether the institution will last very long after her. I always think it will. Um, I think, well, let's not get into prognostications of the future. But um, well, what I would, but what I would say is, is, is that one of the other things that we've talked about is how uh, children can be problematic for reigning kings. Yeah, uh, I think Charles is fine, but I think, for instance, Andrew is a shocker. I, I think he's like a kind of great cancer at the heart of people's acceptance of the monarchy. Because a, a kind of thick, entitled perv is not a good look for any king, you know. Even I think English even, even history has been, has been littered with thick, entitled. <laughs> I know, pervs. but they generally they haven't they haven't gone down well. I think I think so. I think Andrew is a kind of reminder to people of what monarchy can serve up to you. Yeah, I think what you I would say in sort of agreement with you is first of all the Queen is probably the most popular monarch. Um, Britain has ever had because by her nature she's not divisive I mean she hasn't had to make the divisive choices that a previous more powerful monarch would have had to have made so her prime ministers have been divisive but she hasn't Um, and she probably leaves the monarchy on firmer foundations than would have seemed possible under any other post 1950s monarch Um, it's hard to imagine how somebody could have left it in a better state as it were Um, so, so yes but she is boring I yeah, mean, this is, is part. You were saying this is partly a tournament about iconography, and about are you iconic? Are you remembered? I think the Queen is iconic. Well, she is iconic, but she's iconic for for yeah, stability, for seriousness, for yeah. responsibility, for duty—all admirable things, but not sexy things. But she's like, globally iconic. 
She I mean, is, if you say the queen, you know, there are lots of everybody queens, knows. But, but, but everyone well, knows as, who, we, who, as we, you and I were talking about just the other day, um, not on the podcast, the fact that this, that the Athelstan result was being reported in kind of Indonesian news websites saying, you know, oh, the queen, great, the queen didn't win. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, why would they care? They care because the Queen is iconic and is seen as a symbol of Britishness. And actually becoming a symbol of the nation is what the monarchy... I mean, that's the sign of success, isn't it? And I think also that that she has served as a kind of living reassurance to people that, um, you know, the country is still the country, that Britain is still Britain, yeah. even Tom, as people worry that they're not. We're a day to degenerate into a Channel 5 royal documentary. Yeah, we are. Let's, um, yeah. let's, let's move on. Um, so we've got, um, so they were the two semi finalists. And then the, the final was Elizabeth and Athelstan Elizabeth I. We did do a podcast about Elizabeth I with Tracy Borman, um, earlier in this series, but let's just talk a bit about that clash, the Athelstan against Elizabeth I. So that's, I mean, they're, they're symbols. They're both symbols of Englishness. Athelstan was obviously a slightly sort of connoisseur's choice of, mm. you know, People who are really interested in history kind of like the Anglo-Saxons, partly because they're not well-known, because they are a bit different. They're not part of the general sort of slightly tiresome cliches of English history, whereas Elizabeth I is absolutely the centre of all the cliches of English history, isn't she? Yeah. Define the Spanish Armada, Shakespeare, Drake, all of this sort of stuff. But ultimately, I think if this poll had been done by the general public rather than the rest is history listeners, surely Elizabeth I would have won, wouldn't she? I think so, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, you can sort of tell that in the incredulity with which news outlets, some news outlets reported it. What I mean, all I, would, all I would say is that um, that I, I, I don't think that anyone has any reason to hate Athelstan. <laughs> Vikings? <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I, it's, it's all such ancient history that, yeah. that even, um, you know, the Welsh aren't going to complain that he, he kind of bossed them around. The Scots aren't going to complain yeah. that he invaded scotland i mean it's this is all so long ago no one feels strongly enough yeah. about him i think to dislike him there have been people who have quite strongly disliked elizabeth but that's is it that, that's surely a bit sort of performative isn't it i mean elizabeth the first is not by and large a terribly divisive monarch well again but again i was jane austen yeah huge fan of mary queen of scots yeah um, a disgrace to humanity, she called Elizabeth, the destroyer of all comfort, the deceitful betrayer of trust reposed in her. Well, at least that's not massively overstated. No. Well, Jane Austen, famous for her excessive language. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and and she is a queen during a period of, of you know, radical religious upheaval, of, of division. Um, her great achievement is to um, join uh, Protestantism with patriotic English identity. Uh, that is that is something I think that is fading now. In a reasonably unifying way, actually, Tom, at a time of yes. enormous turmoil. I mean, you consider that what had preceded and then what was to follow in the next hundred years. Completely, so. completely. But I'm just saying that that it is possible if you are, say, I don't know, Catholic or Irish uh, yeah. or both, that you don't necessarily see Elizabeth I as a, a necessarily a great figure. No, you don't. But you cannot deny she's a colossally effective figure. I'm not. So, I'm not denying it, but I'm just saying that there are reasons. No, no, no. Why but people I'm saying even her critics, that. even her critics, couldn't deny that she is a brilliant opportunist, a brilliant political survivor. Her, her, the challenges facing her are absolutely colossal as a woman in a time of such religious turmoil with Spanish hostility, the hostility of the greatest superpower. You know, it's certainly in the Western world. She is up against it. 
Um, and, and playing the Virgin Queen part and sort of Gloriana and the incarnation of Englishness is a brilliant, brilliant propaganda coup. Well, we've said that, that this is all about whether you're iconic. And I mean, she's literally iconic. <laughs> she yeah. kind of replaces the Virgin Mary in the, yeah. in the affections, of, you know, the symbolism. England had was famously devoted to Mary. She was um, her, the devotion of the English to the Virgin Mary yeah, was, sort of was celebrated. Always, yes, is it Walsingham a church? Yes, uh, lady? yeah, yeah, Our Lady of Walsingham and Elizabeth brilliantly, brilliantly kind of usurps that role. Yeah. She steps into into the Virgin shoes, if you like. So she's absolutely, literally iconic in that sense. Yeah, um, which is why she reached the final. Why she was the number one seed, and why I think it was a big, you know global press attention focused <laughs> on uh, the stunning result of this what i think has been our best world cup well it's certainly been uh, the one that uh, people have got most excited about i have a little bit of a soft spot for the prime minister's world cup i have to say i enjoyed yeah. that one yeah. um but do you think these things have oh, they're interest they're an interesting insight into the minds of history buffs i think do you think that's fair i guess so yeah yeah um, certainly an interesting insight into the minds of our listeners on yeah. whom we and ourselves we so depend but I don't think we particularly influenced it. Oh, come on. Well, you were plugging your book on Athelstan from start to finish. No, I wasn't. I might have uh, mentioned it once, I think. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I wasn't as partisan as I was in the, um, the notorious Isis Anubis. No. Well, that, that, was, that was nice that we didn't have a, a repeat of that. Because at the end, I was torn about Athelstan. On the one hand, I didn't massively want to promote your book more than you were doing <laughs> it already. It must be for you. But on the other hand, I sort of wanted him to win. Um, though I do think Elizabeth I, uh, I, I'm not dissing Elizabeth I, I think she's, you know, uh, she's deservedly a titanic fi- figure in English history in, um, in a way that Athelstan actually isn't. No, of course. Yeah. And that's why it's a, bit, that's why it's a big story, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, it's all been great. Uh, we need, at some point, perhaps, we'll do another uh historical World Cup. World Cup. Are we American will. presidents perhaps or um Caesars or the worst kings and queens of England or Yeah. You know, I mean the worst kings, how would that vote? I mean would you be voting for the least worst or the genuinely worst? Today we'd have to decide. I mean we obviously, would. you know, as as um uh, presidents of this board of sport, that's up to us. Yeah. Um but something to look forward to. Definitely. World Cups to come and great podcasts to come. We've got uh, CIA coming up, haven't we? We've got Neanderthals. We've got Napoleon in Egypt. We have the Burgundians. And then we've got Christmas. We've got Dickens. We've got some more churches. We've got it all. Don't go away. (laughs) No. (laughs) See you then. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I 
barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.